Uh-oh, it looks like we piqued your interest in the hideout. First of all, let me tell you what the hideout is not. The hideout is not for hustlers, for grinders, or for people who are looking for a shortcut to what the world calls success. The hideout is about growing as men, creating lifelong friendships, and having the time of our lives. Are you ready to tap in to the endless source that will take you from success to significance? The hideout is two and a half days of hiking, biking, and doing the little things that it takes to create lifelong friendships. I find that joy is nothing more than falling in love with your current circumstances and allowing magic to happen. And that's when we see growth in every area of your life. Have you accomplished your goals professionally and financially? and you still thirst for something more? Has success in these areas come at the expense of far more valuable things like your family, your children, and your relationships? Alignment in business, strategic partnerships, and joint ventures all come from true relationships. The Hideout is designed to get to know people before you'll ever need them. This is not your typical mastermind. The Hideout is focused on the one thing that will fuel everything joy. And when joy is overflowing in your life, you'll find growth in your marriage, your relationships, and oh yeah, your business. Welcome to the Kelly Cardenas Podcast, where attitude is everything. I get goosebumps every single time that I see that commercial. It's not because it's me, but I see because of the effect and impact that it has on men and on women across the country. Um, the Hideout, honestly, one of the most ultimate hangouts, and you never know who's going to show up at the Hideout. Uh, I'm, I'm very excited because I hope someday this guy that I'm talking to, uh, that you're going to meet and you're going to fall in love with, and... Most likely you're going to be mad at him because you're going to have to change your whole entire business strategy and your blueprint, but he's going to break it down for you. Hopefully he's going to be at the hideout at some point. He'll come and share with each and every person, which I think would be amazing. Before we get uh, in, I want to uh, do a shout out to a couple people. Number one, Private Money Club. When you're looking to either uh, find money or you're looking to lend money, Private Money Club is absolutely phenomenal. It's a very simple way of being able to uh, finance your real estate deals, um, different investments, everything like that. And secondly, Finley Volvo Cars of Las Vegas, the greatest service that you could ever think of. These guys are on the cutting edge and have been doing things for years, and just the world is catching up now. It's Finley Volvo Cars of Las Vegas. So um, I am honored. Now, the last time when I had this young man on, we sat down. We sat down for almost two hours. We became fast friends. He dropped bombs. He dropped all kind of wisdom. He is the, the authority on business systems. Now, he's not going to say that. And as he smiles, he's going to be like, well, that's not me. But he is. <laughs> and he's really going to change your mind on this because he took what he refers to as neurodi- or what the, the term neurodivergent people, um, autistic people, and he hired 80% of neurodivergent people into his company and built the whole entire company and the systems based off of that because he was inspired by his brother, Andrew, which we're going to talk about. And they created him and his dad. Uh, he's the co-founder of Rising Tide Car Wash and uh, the, the COO and 
a best-selling author. And he was like, well, not yet. Yes, he is. His mom's going to buy his book, so that makes him a bestseller in his family. Um, but I, I tell you, it's, it's an honor and a pleasure. And uh, it taught me, too, Thomas, that it's not always going to be the plan that you, that you make it first that's going to be the perfect thing. Because we had a plan with the last podcast. We recorded, and we got done. It was fire. And then I checked the audio, and it didn't come out. And what was so amazing is Thomas, when I reached out to him, he said, no problem at all. Let's get rescheduled. I want to come back on. And uh, I'm excited now because we're closer to his book dropping, uh, which is going to be a bestseller, The Power of Potential. But please welcome to the show the co-founder and COO and bestselling author, Mr. Thomas Derry. Thank you, Kelly. Thanks so much. And, and just for that uh, introduction, it's worth coming back on here. That was awesome. <laughs> He also helped me fix my mic now, so hopefully I'll sound better <laughs> for you and, and other future podcasts. Well, I think, it's, I think it's amazing, man. I think you're one of the most important people in business right now. And uh, the reason why is because, it, like, you blew my mind. We sat down the last time, and, and uh, Thomas, you were telling me, or do you want me to call you Tom or you want me to call you Thomas? Which one? I usually go by Tom, but I'll answer to anything. No, I want to. I want to be your friend. Like we're close friends. You know what I'm saying? We're family now. Two calls. We're family. So, the thing that blew me away, Tom, is I started looking at every single system in my life. I started looking at things that made me mad that I was okay with, and I had it happen this morning. I was in my um, in my kitchen. And I walked through and I stepped on one of the, uh, they, we have the laminate floors, and I stepped on one of them and it squeaked. Well, it's been squeaking for six years. And it squeaked the day after we got it done. And I looked across the floor and I was like, there's a lot that you would have to do to be able to fix this one thing. I'll deal with the squeak. But now you're in my head. Can you explain why and how you were able to take that little squeak and help people to be able to communicate it so the systems will be better and your business will be better. Yeah. Yeah. So I wonder if, if ever that little squeaky uh, uh, floor um, panel has messed up your day before. Has it ever like frustrated you and then you went into a meeting a little bit more you know, pissed off than you would have and all of a sudden things spiraled out of control? Uh, that's the context of your work environment that, that, you know, may have negative consequences. Normally, like you just said, we just say, ah, whatever, it's not a big deal. But that can hold your business back when you're doing that over and over again. And that's essentially what we found that by working with our employees with autism, they really made it apparent all the little misses within our systems that we needed to fix in order to effectively support them, right? That was our mission, 80% people with autism. We founded the business on that. We would have gone down swinging before we ever gave that up. And by, by designing around those employees, they helped us find these friction points in our business that otherwise probably would have gone unspoken and we wouldn't be nearly as strong of an organization as we are today. So help me with this because a lot of people are like, wait, 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 you employ 80% autistic people. There's a stat and you have the stat that of how many in the autistic community are unemployed? Yeah. So the numbers aren't, um, th th there's no, been no really good research studies around this, but the best that we can tell about 80% of people with autism are unemployed or underemployed. And what's so striking about that number is that only 16% of 
of people with autism have significant intellectual disabilities. So that means there's a large group of people who are totally capable of being valuable employees that are being left on the bench because we don't know how to uh, design specifically our interview systems and our talent selection systems, and then our actual business operational systems to effectively support people who are a little different. So let's talk about the interview system, because I think this part, it, it again, <clears throat> you blew my mind the whole entire time. Number one, you blew my mind when I read the book. I gobbled the book so fast. It is coming out. When is the book coming out? Is it available right now? On January 24th. Okay, so on January 24th, everybody who's listening, you need to go and get this book because if you're in business, you need the book. If you own a business, you need the book. If you're alive on this planet and have a family or deal with people or have any type of relationships, friendships, you need this book. And for me, it, it, it's a, it was a mind-blowing thing when you talked about the interviewing process. Can you talk about, first, let's talk about how it was broken because... And, and I was, I was mad at you because you were, you called me out because I, you know, having a business and you were like, well, it's broken. And I was like, oh, but he's going to tell me that I'm doing the right thing. And then you were like, no, that's not. So tell us about the broken system and then talk to us about how you fixed it. Yeah. So traditional unstructured interviews, essentially where you and I sit down, I give you a good firm handshake. I look you in the eye and hopefully you like me, is a really bad way to effectively assess talent. So much so that oh, there was a 85-year-long year study of these unstructured interviews, and it found only a 14% correlation between the interviewer's assessment of that person's talent and their actual success in that role. That's wild, right? So we think we're great innately or we have a good gut feeling on people and that means we we can read people and we know if someone's going to be good or not like it's my business of course i know if someone's going to be good or not by just talking to them turns out that's not true at all there's very few people if anyone who can really effectively do that and we learned that over and over again um you know, with our neurotypical staff, so like the, the 20% of our staff that's not on the autism spectrum, we just did, we did that type of interview for years and we just turned staff over and over again, failed over and over again. And from day one with our staff with autism, we knew we needed better and different interview processes because most of our employees, they didn't have resumes. They weren't going to wow you socially in the interview process. So what you were going to have to do is find an objective way to determine, can they actually do this job? And that's uh, what we call a job audition, uh, a type of interview where you're actually bringing someone into the actual work environment and you're identifying and testing if they can do the core parts of that job. So for us, that's bringing a candidate onto, the, onto an actual car, us telling them how to do something, then they try to do it. And that helps us understand, okay, are they okay in the work environment? Can they follow directions? They have the physical ability to do this job. And, and that process coupled with um, a pre-hire training process where someone has to actually be get certified in our most fundamental skill, which is being able to do our passenger side interior cleaning process 
on time and on accuracy to the process. That yielded almost a 97% success rate with our employees from day one. And we haven't had to fire an employee with autism due to job performance in over four years. And I mean, so it's like way different, right? Way different outcomes. But we had to learn to apply that to everybody. We didn't know that at first, that it was broken for everyone. Hiring processes just aren't good when you, you don't have real rigor behind what makes someone successful in this particular organization, in this particular role. Generally, it's not something that's going to show up on, an, on a resume. It's something that's going to show up in the type of character and values that you want in your organization. For us, is somebody have a growth mindset? Are they resilient? Are they willing to take personal responsibility? Are they assertive enough to coach other people and to speak up when something isn't going well? Those are the things that we look for. We can teach everything else. So, and I think that's true in most organizations for most roles that getting to the, the, the core aspects of what's going to make someone successful in a job makes you think really critically about how, how do I test those things in a hiring process? And when you do that, one, you'll get better outcomes to begin with. Two, you'll have a way stronger platform for improvement. So anytime someone fails, right, you can say, okay, well, Jimmy failed there. Why did Jimmy fail? Let's change the interview. So maybe we can identify that a little earlier. And three, it'll really broaden your access to talent. And I think that one's so critical for so many organizations that are starting to struggle to find talent is that when we look at like, we need specific things on a resume and we're looking for a specific personality, there's just not that many people that are going to fit those criteria that they're going to find you on your job ads and stuff. But when we say, okay, I don't actually care what's on their resume, or there's very little on their resume that actually matters, but I'm looking for these core value traits, you can find people from very divergent life experiences all over that can fill your roles, and you'll have much less trouble finding good people. So it was amazing too, because as I, as I read, like one of the things in the book, which I got it, I got an early copy. So all of you out there, you have to wait till the 24th, but go to the 24th. If you're listening to this right now too, and you're tuned in, what I want you to do is I want you to think about in your phone right now, a friend who has a child who has autism or a friend who has a friend who has autism. And I want you to Take this link and I want you to send it out to them right now because they need to hear Thomas's message. And Thomas's message comes from the heart and it's about communication. And this was a big thing because one of the things in the book is said that you were successful in your business, not in spite of, but because of the fact that you chose to hire autistic people. And 80%, 80, this is, I mean, it, again, it blew my mind. 80%. And it helped you guys to communicate at a different level. And you, but I think the thing that stuck out to me, Thomas, was when there was an employee who dropped F-bombs on their manager and you encouraged it and not encouraged the behavior, but you encouraged it, found something different and you didn't fire the person. Can you talk, can you talk about yeah. that? Because this blew my mind. Yeah. So, uh, 
every Monday night we do uh, what we call Maintenance Monday, where we're, we're going to do all of our preventative maintenance and a bunch of cleaning inside the car wash tunnel. We have a bunch of employees come in all doing a bunch of different tasks to make sure everything's greased, all our inspections are done, the tunnel looks nice and clean for our customers. And there was a team member who like blew his lid during, during this process. At first, it, he looked like he was kind of just being lazy and not doing anything. Manager kind of snapped at him and said, get to work. He then snapped back, got frustrated and yelling, cursing, eventually throwing the write up that he, he was, he was given in his manager's face and storming off. Right. So pretty terrible experience. But the way that we approach those situations in general, and this one in particular, is we went and we sat down with him, right? We said, okay, what happened? Tried to understand the context that drove that behavior. Because this team member generally is a super hard worker. He's normally on time or early. He's always willing to pick up shifts. He always gives 100% in anything that he does. But he can get a little stressed out sometimes. So we, we, we listened to him and we, under, we started to try to understand from his perspective what happened. And while that behavior certainly wasn't acceptable and he definitely deserved the write-up, there was also some really important points that he made, which were he didn't know what he was supposed to do. He didn't know what he was supposed to do first, what was most important. He had like eight different things that he thought he kind of should do but he wasn't really sure what was on his plate that night. So he just, instead of doing one of them and just trying to, to do it, he froze. And then he's stressed, obviously, because he's, he's freezing. Then his manager pushes on him instead of trying to help him. And that stress just gets transferred over to her and it becomes a, a bigger problem and, and, and escalates. But we failed there from a management perspective and from an organizational perspective to provide clear guidance on what he was supposed to do. We failed all of the employees there that night in that same way. But this young man just happened to be the one who exploded. So what we ended up doing is, so now in, on Monday nights, we've got a big job board with everybody's name and what their first, second, third tasks are to complete. And then they check them off as they go through it. That gets written out by 3 o'clock, um, 3 p.m. that day. So that way team members can see what they're going to have to do. They can mentally prepare for that. And then they can just get after it at 6.30 or 7 o'clock when it slows down enough to start doing the process. And we never had a blow up like that again. And it also became a lot more efficient and a lot easier for people to, to get that stuff done. So Thomas, you're saying that a person blowing up is a, is a, is a positive thing. And, and again, like our first conversation, when I thought about that at first, I was like, I wanted to argue with you. I wanted to be like, no, you need to show people, you need to show discipline. You need to do this. You need to do that. And then I started to think about it and how many things out there in our lives are we again stepping on the little wood panel that I stepped on this morning, this week that pisses me off every single time. And I think about it every single time, but I'm willing to take it on because I've been taught in life that I just need to push through. I need to cowboy up. I need to, you know, work through this thing, but it's blowing the balloon up bigger and bigger and bigger until there's an explosion. And then I'm constantly turning over employees that are so 
so frustrated by the, the system. Let's talk about communication because the communication part for you in the onboarding, I mean, I see in organizations so much that the onboarding is where most companies fail, but they wait a year in and then they wonder why the challenge is happening. Can you speak to that? Yeah. I, you know, so, so much of this is context, right? Like trying to understand the context, the full context of a situation you're putting people in and onboarding is such an interesting one because that person who you just hired is not, they're not loyal to your organization yet. They have no actual understanding of what your organization stands for. Besides the maybe one or two conversations that they had, maybe they came to the business or maybe they did it on Zoom and you just, you're talking head through the computer to them. And then their first touch points, the first experiences they have with the business are haphazard and disjointed and stressful. They're going into this new environment. They don't know anyone. No one's ready for them that first day. They get handed a packet of like all these rules of what to do, sign off on that, fill out your paperwork, and then get to work. And that, that really can, can color the rest of the employment experience. Uh, I, I have a friend who's a speech pathologist, and her company's onboarding essentially was her showing up the first day and having her first client 15 minutes after she showed up. Just here's your room, good luck. No indoctrination into the, into the, the software system that they use, where they take their notes, no, um, no tools and their like, like games and stuff that they use, nothing. Just go ahead, start billing for us. Thank you very much. And you know, she cried that day, she was, you know, livid and and super stressed and she she comes home and she cries and then like when you talk to her about this experience she's like yeah and then i talked to my friends now at work and they all had the same experience first day tears super stressed and then they wonder why everybody there is like screw this place i don't really care i'm here i like the people i work with they're cool but this organization if i got a better opportunity i'd be out of here tomorrow and that's because you didn't do anything as an organization to show people that you cared. She's just, from day one, it was very clear. You are a cog in the machine. You are part of the factory apparatus, but you are not uh, valued any more for your, than your ability to build. And I think a lot of organizations do that. Obviously not on purpose. This organization, it's not like it's run by tyrants. They simply haven't put the time and effort into thinking about those things. And it's easy for the, the new employee to just make that leap and say, well, they don't care about me because of the way this experience went. They don't care about their employees. When you flip that around and you say, okay, I go to a new job and there's somebody waiting there to greet me on that first day. They've given me a bunch of training material to understand all of the systems that I'm going to have to interact with before that first day. So when I come on site, I already have a kind of an idea of what's going on. I get introduced to the team. I get either a personal letter or a video from the founder welcoming you to the team. There's lunch with their team members that it's a, a welcoming lunch. I have a, a peer mentor that can help show me around 
what to do, and a first, maybe a first friend at work. And then over the course of those first couple of weeks, we're checking in, we're giving them more training. And that's a much different experience. That shows like, hey, okay, these, these folks care. And there will be little misses for everybody. Still for us, every new employee, there's something that we drop the ball on. It's just, there's too many little cogs in that machine for everything to just go off perfectly every time. But because you did that work early on to show that the person that you really care about the person that ends up being enough to overlook some of those littler issues because you went and you built up that equity to start. When I first heard, uh, you know, Paige, let me know about your book. And then she sent it to me. I got an early copy. I want to brag about that again. (laughs) When I read it, I was thinking, oh man, this guy is amazing. Him and his pop, they're going to teach all these autistic people, neurodivergent people, they're going to teach them how to work, how to come into the workforce. As I read the book, it was exactly opposite. The neurodivergent and autistic people in your company taught you how to be able to create a blueprint. Can you speak on this? And honestly, like I'm getting goosebumps again, Thomas, (laughs) and I'm going to say this again. I'm going to say this probably 50 times during this podcast. If you are listening right now, and you have an autistic child, or you have friends who have an autistic child, or you have an autistic brother, share this with them right now. If you have maybe a challenge because you're thinking, man, I I just kind of don't know what to do, or maybe I feel alone in this, share it right now because what Thomas has for us is not just about business, it's about life. But let's go back to what have the autistic community, what has the autistic community taught you about business? Yeah. So people with autism, you can look at them as extreme users of organizational systems. They have the same needs as anybody else. They're just more apparent. So when we went to start to try to employ people with autism, the first thing was the hiring process, which we talked about again already. But then we get into business and we see our employees with autism struggling because we didn't do things like set up clear guidance, clear systems for them to operate within. Things became chaotic in opening a new business and they got stressed because of that. We then said, okay, we care about these people. We want them to be successful. That's why we're here. So we did the work to structure the work environment, to color code everything, to give clear processes for everything that we do, to build checklists and training, to make sure everybody was on the same page. And all of a sudden, our employees with autism started to do awesome. And all of a sudden, business started to pick up. And we we started to get out cars much faster and a much higher quality than we were before and than our competition was. And we kept doing this. And we kept seeing a problem that our employees with autism would run into, a legitimate organizational problem that would have otherwise been swept under the rug and your normal employee probably would have just soldiered on, not doing their best work, but just dealing with it. Our employees didn't do that. They showed us these problems. They, they gave us an opportunity to fix them. We fixed them one by one. We fixed them. And all of a sudden, every time we do that, the business gets a little better. And our customers are a little happier.
I think we lost Thomas there for a second, uh, but it's amazing. He when he when he comes back, when we have him back here in a second, we're going to have him uh, talk to us about the cash mat. The cash mat is something that really honestly blew my mind when I had uh, Mr. Thomas on, and we we started talking about things. Um, and one of the biggest things for him in my uh, in my experience with him, it was the cash mat. And here he is again. So we'll we'll add him right back. Uh, Let's see here. We should have him back here in a uh, in a second. And so, um, the cash mat was something for me that was so 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 important because as he was um, as they were closing out, they were closing out their their business um, one night. I think it was like 30%. I was talking about this on Instagram. About 30% of the time, they were having challenges um, with the drawer being over or under. Well, they had a cash mat that they thought, and it was built by the by a neurotypical person that said, hey, this is where the cash goes. And it was like, a, um, it was laminated and it had space for the dollars and space for the fives and space for the twenties and all these things. And what what we noticed what what uh, what he was talking about with this and Thomas I was just talking about the cash mat by the way okay so I, I was saying I, I don't know the exact uh, number um, as far as uh, percentage but I said thirty so w- work with me here but thirty percent of the time it was around there that the That's cash right. was off or on and then the cash mat which you guys had designed it was designed by a neurotypical person trying to teach an autistic person to be able to do this, but this is where I saw it change. And the cash mat part of it, you had a guy, I believe his name was Robert. Um, was it Robert? It was Luco. Okay, Luco. And Luco came and said, no, the, uh, you know, I'm not working out, and he, he didn't close out well. I'm killing the story. But when they asked him why, he said, because the cash mat sucks. This is my paraphrasing. <laughs> the cash mat sucks. It should be like this. And then when the when uh, Rising Tide Car Wash listened, then they fixed their challenge and dropped their percentage down in the in the uh, single digits as far as uh, right. being over or under. Can you talk about this experience and how impactful yeah. that was? Yeah, no, you did a great job. Um, yeah, so we were having this issue. We decided we needed to organize the cash better. That's why we were having so many errors in our nightly cash out procedure. And the first um, version of it, like Kelly just said, it wasn't very good. And Luco let us know very quickly. He's like, this thing sucks. I don't want to use this. Why do I have to use this? And then we're like, no, nah, man, like we really need your help to, to make this right because everybody is struggling with doing our night our, our nightly cash accurately he said well okay well this needs to be fixed that needs to be fixed this proportions off i need a formula here i need some more instructions here and then we fixed it and then all of a sudden almost overnight our error rate dropped from 31 percent to four percent and what was even cooler than that was that now we can take and a new employee who had never done cash before that it used to take two weeks for us to train someone to do this effectively. Now it takes one or two sessions. We can give them training beforehand. They can practice on it. And then when, you know, seven o'clock rolls around and we close and they start to do the cash, 
maybe one or two coaching sessions and boom, they can close the cash, which is great for all of our team because nobody wants to do training after seven o'clock. They just want to go home as quickly as possible. <laughs> so, you know, we, we get them now, we have more accurate closing and we have better training. And now Luco, who hated it at first, right? He transfers to another one of our locations that's closer to his house. And the first thing he says to the manager is, you guys got to get a cash mat because that thing's really helpful. So you, by bringing him into the solution, now he's a champion for that solution. And I think that can happen over and over in businesses. Whenever there's a problem, especially when there's a frustrated employee with the system who probably isn't going to like any of the changes you're going to make, at first, unless you bring them in and they feel like they're part of the solution. And then they become your best champion. And generally, to get change to happen specifically at a frontline position, you need people on the front line who are going to advocate for what you're doing, right? When the boss tells you to do something, there's generally a lot of eye rolling, even if it's a good solution. But when your buddy says, no, you know, I helped them build this, this really works. This is why it's good. This is how it's going to make our lives better. It's, it's met a lot differently. Well, I, and I love when I see a business or, you know, and not only just a business, but a, a mission and a movement like you guys have and what you've created with Rising Tide Car Wash. When you have a mission, but there's a reason behind it. And that reason behind it is one name and it's Andrew. Um, mm -hmm. can you talk about, can you talk about that and growing up? Because your brother is a neurodivergent, uh, is autistic mm -hmm. and you grew up in that, uh, arena. And I mean, at that time, there probably wasn't as much information, right. For yourself as a, uh, as a sibling or even for your parents at the time. Um, so can you talk about that experience? Cause again, I think a lot of people out there with a child or a brother or a, uh, you know, a friend, a lot of times they, they feel alone. Yeah. So Andrew was on like the first wave of major diagnoses of people with autism. He was born in 1991. He was diagnosed, I think, in 1993 or 1994. And at that point, it was like one in 10,000 kids were diagnosed with autism. So today it's one in 44. So there's been a huge increase in diagnoses. And Andrew was like right at the beginning of that wave. So there wasn't a lot of information and there were really no opportunities for him when he was going to graduate high school. What we were told is that Andrew, the best case scenario for Andrew was that, he, you know, we could buy a group home. Some people could live there, including Andrew, and he'd live this like mini institutionalized life. And that was something that was just totally unacceptable for my dad. There's no chance he was going to allow that to happen. And I, you know, I saw all of Andrew's struggles growing up. But what was even more, what, what st sticks with me even more is that he worked so freaking hard as a kid. He would go to school all day and then he would come home and do three or four hours of therapy whether it be ABA therapy or speech therapy or tutoring for his, his um, course curriculum. And he would never complain. He would do it. He would, he would try his best. And, and he really became this super agreeable, good-hearted, hardworking young man. And to see that there were not any opportunities for him out there, 
because we look at autism as a disability that requires sympathy instead of a really valuable diversity. It was just not an acceptable thing. So that's why we took action. That that's really the inspiration behind everything that we decided to do. And it, it really quickly, because at this point we, we didn't know anybody with Andrew, with autism besides Andrew and like a couple of his friends, but once we started to get out into the community and get to see and meet more people with autism, we saw, wow, there's so much talent here. There are so many people here that would be killer employees for so many roles. And because they're not going to give you a super firm handshake and communicate with you the way you're expecting them to communicate with you, they just don't get opportunities. And, you know, as we've talked about, we've done a lot of things to make sure that happens. But those things are just really good business practices. There's, there's nothing really expensive or really uh, difficult or unique that you need to do to employ people with autism. You just need to run a really good business that's really clear and good, has good leadership and is focused on results, which are what most high-performing organizations strive for. And when you do those things, now you can access a group of people who will really value their jobs. And, and I think most small and medium-sized business owners have real difficulty finding people that genuinely want to do the job that you're hiring for. And I'm going to add the large businesses too, because I think a lot of times just because they're so large, they, people just get lost in the sauce. And they think, okay, well, I got the results, but they're, a lot of times they're not looking at the people aspect of it. And what we talk about, um, you know, what I've talked about before is, is the, the evangelical marketing, right? And, and you have this at the highest level, meaning that most of the people that are a part of your organizations are evangelists of Rising Tide Car Wash, right? Mm -hmm. How powerful is that to have a person who actually believes and is locked in and will tell their friends without incentive about rising tide car wash? I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the single most important things for our business from a success perspective. How often do you go and talk about your car wash unless you're complaining about your car wash, <laughs> about how <laughs> shitty the experience was that they didn't do a good job. It took forever. That's the only time the car wash comes up when you're, when you're talking about it usually. So for us, our customers, they want to talk about it because they want to share the mission because they thought it was really cool and they had a good experience with one of our team members. And it was just like an inspiring part of their day that otherwise would have been this mundane chore. And, you know, we can measure this in that when we do our, our online ads and we do like uh, an ad for a free car wash or an ad with our mission, our mission based ads get at least five times more engagement than the free car wash ads do. So when you extrapolate that out, there's, there's really significant value in being able to tell a story to your customers that matters to them. You, you, and, you, and there's a million businesses in your community that are like this, right? Not just car washes, your dry cleaners, your delis, your hair salons, all these community-based businesses that typically are competing on the same value proposition and you need a way to stand out, this is a really compelling way to do that. 
Well, it's, it's incredible because as I started to look at, you know, employing autistic people, which you do at 80% and, you know, creating over what, 195 jobs in 24 companies, um, you've started to set your community in Florida on fire and for them to understand these kind of things. But then I started to think about, okay, is, and I, I tried, cause I, I wanted to create some sort of argument with you. I can't because you're mm-hmm. so freaking nice. Um, but, but I tell you, I, I was like, well, I'm going to find a business that won't work for Thomas and then I'm going to bring it to him. And I swear, as I've gone along, there's not a business out there because every single business needs people who are focused on one little niche part. And if you find a person like you have, that's why I'm saying the, the power of potential, and it's not just the power of potential, your book, but your concept, Thomas, you, Tom, as I know him, cause you're my friend, Every single person out there, small, medium, large size business, needs to have more Tom in their life to understand the blueprint because is there a business out there, Tom, that this won't work with? I think these are fairly universal things. At least, at least that's my perspective on them, is that I don't think there's a single organization that is too objective in the way that they hire, is too clear in the expectations that they set, provides really good training or, or too good of training, is too focused developmentally on their people, and it too much tries to understand their team members where they're struggling and build systems around how to help them do their jobs better. I, I don't think you can do those things too much in any organization. And I think that last one, where we're standing in there with people and we're saying, okay, you're struggling. That's okay. We're going to make this learning experience for everyone. Where are you struggling? Where is the organization failing you as an employee? That experience, I think, is such an underutilized tool by most managers because we're all looking for ways to show our team that we care for them. And we're all looking for ways to make our team more productive make the environment more psychologically safe. And this is like, I think the single best practice we've ever found that can, can deliver those things. And employing people with autism is, you know, it, it's giving you right away when you're deliberately bringing people with autism into your organization, it's giving you this permission to care. It's you, it, it's you as a business owner telling the rest of your team that it's okay to come here who you are. We know you're not perfect. That's okay. We're here to do this together. Everybody's going to grow together. You know, doing these types of initiatives can really help you develop that message in your organization, which is something that I think most organizations really yearn for. So again, I tried to poke holes. I I tried to. And Every hole that I poked, I was like, man, that is something that needs to be used every single day in every single company or every in organizations that I get a chance to be able to be around. And it's, it's, it, it, for me, it's so impactful because when you look at the, when you look at the communication aspect, right. And you look at that part of it, who doesn't want to be communicated with? Who doesn't want to have an environment where they can feel safe? But can you talk to also the the challenges that neurotypical people will have in these because you've gone through them? Because and 
through the book, and I'm not saying that you haven't had any challenges with neurodivergent or autistic people, but what I, what stood out to me was most of the challenges were the boneheads that came in and tried to be like, yo, you got to do it like this. And then the autistic person was like, hey, this part sucks. And so can you talk to the challenges that in the event a person is going to, uh, you know, hire autistic people, what challenges the neurotypical people are going to have in that environment? Yeah. So I, I think those challenges, a lot of times they come down to a couple things. One, a manager who likes to dictate their solution to the team and force people to do it their way, that oftentimes is a less than ideal solution that you, most of your employees might just mutter under their breath about, but, but our employees with autism are going to have genuine difficulty with that less than ideal solution. So that pushing, just trying to force people through something doesn't work so well with team members with autism. No one's going to do their best work in that scenario, but people with autism are going to ex exceptionally struggle there. And then the other thing is you not being a consistent leader, right? A lot of people, they'll set rules and then they won't follow them. They'll make processes, but that's only for everybody else. It's not for me. And when we do those things, that also that creates confusion in the work environment. Again, that most of your employees might just get frustrated with, but never say anything about, but you're going to create frustration where it brings business down and you, it brings your employee performance down in a really visible way that you have to then change around. But both of those scenarios, right? Those are not good for your business. The, the things when you have a, a leader who dictates solutions or a leader that's a hypocrite and doesn't follow the processes that you laid out, like those are bad for your organization. And what, what I find, one of the experiences that, I've, that we've had that just, it still sticks out for me is when we started to really build all of that structure into our organization, we went from being a chaotic mess early on, we didn't know what we were doing at all, to trying to really drive structure into the organization. We, we started to see our employees with autism do way better, but there was a portion of our neurotypical employees who were now exposed as not wanting to do anything you actually asked them to do. They, before they were able to get away with it because you couldn't actually see what was going on in the chaos. But now you can say, hey, Johnny isn't following the process. He's not doing anything over there. He's on his phone. He did a couple tire shines. He walks away. And now it's apparent because everybody else is following this methodical process and you see Johnny over there who doesn't look like he's doing the same thing and it, it points out to you. Or same guy doesn't want to do, do the morning checklist and you see that checklist didn't get submitted and like, well, why, why didn't this happen? It's like, oh, we opened up fine, but I, I didn't do the checklist, right? Even though that, that probably is going to lead to him missing a couple things that could cause much larger issues down the road. So it, it also exposes people who, who aren't wanting to follow the instructions that the leader and what that the organization's vision is by having clear expectations and clear ways of doing things. These are things that our employees with autism, they need these routines to be successful, but everybody does better. And the organization is just such a more effective place when they're, when they're there. Well, again, like when I read the book, I, I was telling you, I was looking for holes and I thought when I, okay, 
a company that starts off and base their whole mission on that we're going to employ autistic people. We're going to have 80% autistic people in our company. And I was like, okay, so this is going to be a fluffy company. This is going to be like a feel-good story. You know what I'm saying? Like it's a nonprofit organization, as we call it in the, you know what I'm saying? Like not nonprofit, mm -hmm. like uh, 501c3, but I'm just talking about nonprofit, not making any money. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, and, and a lot of people run these businesses because they're like, you know what? I really love what I do. And, and I want to do what I love in my heart, but I, I believe that if you love it, you need to honor it. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to... Give us the top line revenue for all of uh, around, you could give a roundabout and then talk about the increases that you've been able to have. Because when I tried to poke that hole in it, then you came back with like stats that I was like, I'm mad at Tom now. Like, I, I don't, I don't want to be Tom's friend because he keeps showing me that I'm wrong. So top line revenue and then talk about some of the increases. Yeah. So, so I love what you just said with the, uh, if, you, if I love something, I have to honor it. And, and we really believe that too, in that if we're here to show that people with autism can be great employees, the best way for us to do that is to run a really viable kick-ass business. That's what really matters. That's how we prove that thing. And we've been, we've been able to do that. So we took our first car wash when um, we originally bought it. It was a struggling car wash. It was washing about 35,000 cars a year. Today, that location washes over 170,000 cars a year. And we were able to take that success and reinvest it into building two more car washes, which are just as successful and in some cases a little bit more successful than that first location. All told, we're doing north of $5 million a year in revenue and we're employing <laughs> about 100 people. Let's sit in that for a second. You listen or you watching. If you're watching and you're one of those 84% that haven't subscribed yet, smash the subscribe button. You know it's the right thing to do. Honor it. That's what we were just talking about. Love and honor, right? Um, so in north of $5 million a year, right, how many car washes a year do you guys do? A little over half a million. You went from 30000 to a half a million. With 80% autistic people and the people who had the biggest challenge were the people who thought they were going to teach people. Mm -hmm. Do you see, like, if you're listening, you're watching, do you see why I'm such a big fan of Tom and the power of potential? When you read this book, when you sit down though, make sure you're reading it by yourself and no one else is around because you're going to be embarrassed. I was embarrassed. I was reading it and I was like, is Tom in the room? Like, does he know that I'm, <laughs> does he know that? And you, you listed off in the, really, I was in, I was in park city. I'm sitting in my chair that I love you. You, it's a, a sacred chair for me, but you ruined it for me, Tom. Cause I was sitting in the chair and I started getting like, it was coming from every angle. It was like your onboarding process. Are you firing people uh, because they're not doing well in your place? You know, it was all these things. And I was like, bam, bam. I was like, I don't like Tom right now because I feel like I'm targeted. That's how my, I feel offended. That's what my daughter would say at 14 years. I'm offended because I'm target. You're targeting me, Thomas. Can you, can you talk about the four things that I, I believe was, there was four things that if you're doing these things, I'm going to paraphrase. If you're doing these four things, your company is going to suck. So <laughs> I'm joking with you. You didn't say that. Or at least be average. Okay. You'll be and, average, right. but you won't reach your 
potential. Full potential. That's okay. right. Hit us with the four. Yeah. So you're hiring based on resumes. You think great talent is the secret to a great business. Your managers are good enough. And for those of you who are looking, listening in audio, I'm putting the, the, <laughs> the fingers up right now. Um, and that you fire your worst employees. Those are mistakes that most organizations make that we made over, over time that we learned to correct that I think really hold a lot of businesses back from reaching their potential. So take us back into growing up with, uh, growing up with Andrew, right? So how many years there between you guys? Uh, we're about 20 months apart. So we're okay. really close. So you guys are twins. You guys are twins mm-hmm. in the East Coast. That's, yeah. that's the East Irish Coast twins. twins. That's yes. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, I wasn't going to say that one, but I was going to say East Coast <laughs> twins. You know what I'm talking about. So yeah. at, at 20 months, what were some of the things, because I think um, uh, we talk a lot about you know, now there's more and more, which I love, there's more and more education as far as the autistic side, right? The neurodivergent side. There's not as much talk about the siblings and the things that the siblings go through in having a sibling that that has autism. And I was just about to say struggle, but I believe that autism is a blessing because the hyper-focus, and we're learning this, and I learned this through your book. Again, you smacked me upside my head with so many different aspects, Thomas. Um, what did what is what does the world not know that a sibling of an autistic uh, person goes through? Yeah, I I think for me and I know other siblings too that that have said they feel the same way is there's a lot of pressure on the neuro neurotypical sibling to not cause any trouble because you know your your parents are already dealing with enough stress. You know, your, your um, sibling with autism when they're young may, may have meltdowns, may kick and scream and get really frustrated because they're in a world that was not designed for them and they're lashing out as a kid. They don't understand how to, how to communicate that effectively or know what they need to feel better. And you, you, you end up with a lot of these like volatile situations. And as a kid, at least for me, I internalized a lot of that and was like, okay, I'm not going to cause my parents any problem. I'm going to be a good student. I'm going to follow the rules and do the things they want me to do so they don't have to worry about me. And, you know, I mean, that, that became a big part of my personality. And, and even, even though, I, I mean, I do like to take risks. I, I'm, I'm the type of person who, who likes to question like the status quo of, of pretty much everything. I'm kind of a skeptical person, but, um, you know, this wanting to be the, the no trouble Thomas. And like, I had to learn to shed that, especially uh, in with our employees, because I had to learn that I had to speak up and tell people things that maybe they didn't want to hear because it was important for their growth or it's important for the organization. I had to be clear and that's kind. However, it could be hard. It means being assertive. And that was something that I needed to, to really work through as, as, as I started to be, become a leader. What was one of the most challenging times for you, Tom? Uh, and you can give us a specific when you're growing up because you're called almost to be sensitive, right? You're called to, you know, here's your brother. He's going through the things. But with siblings, it's still your bro. Like, it's still your brother. You're like, come on, bro. Like, you, you're acting up, you know, what? 
let's talk about the real part yeah. of it because most people don't talk about that part because sure. if you were to come out on an interview, so you've been on the Today Show and you've been everywhere in the world, by the way, Thomas, with you and uh, Rising Tide Car Wash and uh, you're going to be a bestseller with this book that's coming out on the 24th also that I already got. That's how I'm bragging mm -hmm. on it. But if you went on the Today Show and you were like, yo, I was pissed at my brother because he back in the day he threw a fit and I did X, then people would shame you, you know, but I want to talk about that part because it's not yeah. something that anyone ever talks about, but you're a real human being with real emotions. There's got to be some frustrations, um, you know, and maybe a little elbow to them at times or whatever, you know what I mean? To be like, Hey, yo, Andrew, you know, you know, back it off. Give us a specific yeah. on that, that, you know, as you're growing up, because I, I know that there's that type of relationship. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, my relationship with Andrew was different than most, most, brothers that are so close in age, right? We didn't really talk about girls. We didn't play, you know, sports together, but we did have a you know, pretty close relationship. I, I will say there was this one time, my, my mom still talks about this pretty regularly because it was like traumatic, <laughs> but we, um, we went to Universal Studios, which is Andrew's like favorite place in the world now. At the time, he really, really didn't want to go on the Jaws ride. And I mean, I think you can, he was like 10 or 12 years old. He was scared of it. He was scared, even the thought of going on this ride. And me as like, I was like 13. I was like, I want to go on Jaws. We're going on Jaws today. And that put him in such a spiral that like, we couldn't even go to the park that day. He like freaked out. I tried to intervene. He's like scratching me up. And we we had we we just like it killed the day and we were in the parking lot of universal and my mom is just like trying to get us get us together and get us back in the car and you know he he had a meltdown i mean that was that was very overwhelming for him and i mean i think looking back you can see like those parks are really overwhelming there's a ton of people all these noises all all these different things going on and then you add some fear about a ride that you know, 11, 12 year old Andrew in his head, things could be real. Okay. Like you can see why he would freak out. Um, but that, that, you know, that was one for sure that, that we, we, um, was quite a struggle. I also, like, I took on the, the perspective with Andrew of being like his protector. So there were a bunch of times in my childhood where I'd get into fights if somebody was like making fun of Andrew, which was probably not my proudest moments. Um, you know, I think a, a lot of us become like these, these like parent siblings for our, our loved ones with autism, where we're, we're, we're protecting them and we're supporting them and trying to teach them, even though, you know, I have no business doing those things as a 12 year old. <laughs> um, what what so, do you wish yeah. that, what do you wish that people knew about autism? Um, because, um, you know, being in a, in a family, whether it be from a parent perspective, I mean, because you got to see your mom, you got to see your pop, you got to see the love there. Um, what do you wish that people out there, you know, and especially, I, I really, actually, can you talk to the young mothers right now that, you know, have a child with autism right now and they're in it and they're going through it? What, what would you say to that person? That's a good question. Um, there is a tendency that, that, that I notice with a lot of parents with autism that they try to shelter their kids. You know, oh my God, my kid has this disability. I need to protect them. I, I need to shelter them from the world. 
I'm going to be big mama bear and make sure that they, they have everything that they need. And, and to some degree, I mean, that's wonderful and beautiful, but it often holds their children back. It, it puts their kids in this position where they feel like they're helpless. They know mom is going to come to my aid. They know mom is going to cook me a different dinner if I complain because, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm different. Okay, I'm going to have chicken nuggets and ice cream because that's all I'll eat. And, you know, those things, I, I think really as um, those children become adults, uh, you really did them a disservice. It's, it's better to, to push and not let the disability be an excuse for not reaching your potential, not um, doing the best that you can. And it's really difficult. I think it's really difficult specifically for moms to be able to do this. I mean, and dads too, and don't get me wrong, but a lot of times the mom is, is the, the protector. They take on this, this like, I'm going to, this is my baby and, and I'm just going to do move mountains for them. And I mean, I have so much admiration for that. I also know that when we take that too far, there ends up being some issues around it, especially as they get older. So let's talk about Andrew's role in the company right now, because I thought this was awesome, him stopping by the office and, you know, but he's got his roles. What is his role right now in the company? Yeah. So Andrew is, he, he's an associate. He works um, with our crew in our interior cleaning department. Uh, so he, he cleans cars. He um, works in, in a team and he works four days a week at two of our different locations. So we, we, we get the, as much of the team to get to know him as we can. And Andrew's like a local celebrity. He's, um, you know, he goes to all the local businesses. He gets, you know, pizza or goes to the gas station, gets his snacks. Everybody knows Andrew. And he really takes a lot of pride in being the inspiration for the business. Whenever he gets interviewed, that's his thing. He's like, I'm the inspiration. And, you know, he... There was this time where my, my wife, at that point, she was my girlfriend. She, had, she was coming to the car wash and she sees Andrew. She waves to him. Andrew doesn't, doesn't see her in the car, just sees this girl waving to him. And he just gives like the, the royal wave, like, yeah, hey, I'm Andrew. Welcome to Rising Tide. <laughs> and Meg was like, he literally, he just like, it's like ready to sign an autograph. <laughs> it was awesome. Well, uh, talk to us too. There was a, a time where there was a, a strap. Uh, I think it was a shoulder strap over the top, and this wasn't fitting. And this was this was something that um, <clears throat> made me laugh, um, made me think, and had me in that place where I was like, "Man, how many different places can that apply?" Mm, yeah. So to, to to start that story, we use. Um, we use a pressure cleaner to take the bugs off of the front of the car when they, you know, they drive through some bugs on the highway and they come to the car wash. We, we have to pressure clean them off before they go through the automated system. And we apply a little bit of detergent to make that process easier. But what we were running into was that it was our team members were fumbling around with that gun to apply the soap and then apply the, um, the pressure cleaner. And then they, we also have a sign where they show, tell the customer to drive forward and then show them to put the car into neutral and, and p- take their feet off the brakes so they can go through the car wash safely. 
as a lot of things for them to fumble around with. So one of our managers was like, okay, I'm going to solve this problem. And he spent weeks trying to build a gun that could be operated with one hand. And, you know, he, he built a bunch of prototypes. He did he spent a ton of time and effort on this. And he finally built one that he's like, okay, this is going to work great. So he gives it to our team. And within 30 minutes, one of our team members is like, this sucks. How am I supposed to use this? This is terrible. I can't do this with one hand. The other gun was fine. What are you doing? And he, he easily, right, could have been like, no, use this. This is better. This is the way it's going to be. Just kind of force the solution. But instead, because of the way we train our managers and, and the perspective that we take, he listened to Didi, to, to our team member that was like, this, this isn't very good. And what she said was really striking. It was that I don't need a better gun. The other gun was great. I need a, a holster, a way to hold this sign so I don't have to flip between the two and it can just be on me. So immediately we were like, okay, we can find this, this strap. It'll be comfortable. We'll put a swivel on the end so you can flip the sign back and forth and it won't get all twisted up. And all of a sudden, now we have a solution. Now that manager should have, should have gone to our team a little quicker shouldn't have spent so much time prototyping in the back and should have quickly got something into our team's hands. But either way, he went through the process at the end and ended up coming up with a good solution. But I'll tell you what's even more interesting about that. So that's the story that's told in the book. Recently, we've had some team members in that role. They're a little larger. The strap, it turns out, isn't really one size fits all. You know, if it's a really big strap it doesn't fit our littler team members and if it's a normal strap it's too big it's too small to fit around our our bigger team members so just like any organization that really wants to pro- look at things as a prototype like there's always a better way to do it we said okay even though this was something we took pride in so much so that we wrote it in a freaking book we said okay Let's think about this. So this strap doesn't fit everyone. How else can we have that team member be able to hold that sign effectively? And what we found was this like heavy duty magnet that's on a clip that's generally used for tools for guys at construction sites to be able to clip their tools to their belt. It works for us. We put a little strip of metal on the bottom of that sign. And now that sign clips right to the, to the um, belt. It works for all of our team members, regardless of their size. And that the team member who was like, this freaking belt sucks. I'm never using this again. When we gave him that magnet, he was like, wow, thanks. Like nobody ever listens to me that way. And, you know, he, he started to feel better about, about what we were doing. He became a little bit happier in his role but we came up with a, a better solution, right? We're always evolving those solutions. Just because a solution we thought was awesome, that it worked well, doesn't mean it's the perfect solution. And I know that there's going to be something wrong with that freaking magnet too. Guaranteed. <laughs> Something's wrong with it. And eventually we'll figure it out and we'll make it better. So I think a cool thing too with you, Thomas, is the, uh, the fact that a lot of times when people are super successful in business and they are systemized that way, um, then a lot of times their family suffers, suffers. and or they're, you know, they're, they'll suffer in a different area. But when I hear you talk about your wife, you light up. You, I mean, you had a different smile on your face when you talked about your wife. Um, 
how do these um, systems and, as you say, processes, mm-hmm. when you take it into home, does it, does it translate? <laughs> um, that's a good question. I would say my, my wife would not agree. <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't systemize her too much. <laughs> Has she ever caught you? Has she ever caught you doing it? She says, I, I use a different voice when I'm coaching. <laughs> so she's like, don't give me the coaching voice, Tom. I don't want to hear the coaching voice. Well, how do you, how do you keep the, the humility? Because it's like exactly what you just said. Like what I want you to do is if, if we were in 1985, I would want you to re- rewind the cassette that you just downloaded this onto um, from the radio. But I want you to rewind and I want you to listen to the fact of what Thomas took you through. He took you through. He gave the permission to his employees and team members to make iterations. When they made the iteration, he celebrated it. When the iteration, after a very short amount of time, needed to be iterated, he celebrated that part. And then once they got to a point where in his head, the magnet that was going to be amazing that the woman fell in love with, he still gave the open invitation to iteration by saying, at some point, this one's going to suck too, and we're going to continue to be, be able to move on. In that space and staying in that, how, Tom, do you stay so humble? Because a lot of times a person could start off with the right, and this is what happens to so many companies, they start out with the right mission. I want to employ autistic people, 80%. We're making Andrew, you know, the guy, and we're going to do this. And then it starts to constrict and it's like, that's what we built it on. So we have to stay in that. How are you able to continue to stay humble and stay evolving like you are? Yeah, yeah. I appreciate that because humility is something I, I really intentionally work on. I think it's so important for leaders to stay humble. I think for, for me, a lot of it comes down to like the essence of all of this is that the context of a situation is generally so much more nuanced and complex than you look at it and you want it to be when you first look at a situation. And I've been, I've been taught a lot of times I just getting whacked in the face with reality of our team that every time I try to push and like, say, I'm right, this is the way it's going to be. There's recoil. I just get like bonged in the face. And, and over time I learned to love that. I learned to be like, okay, I don't know everything. I know I don't have all the answers to this situation. So let me go ask some questions. Let me get curious, really get curious about what people think and what they're experiencing. Suspend my judgment. Even if I think I have an idea, I'm going to suspend that to start. I don't want to, I don't even want to think about it. I want to bring in more information, understand everybody else's perspective. And that leads to a lot of times this like insight that I live for, I live to, for that, ah, that what you just said there, I would have never thought about that. And even if they don't give me the full solution and they just give me like a part of it that can lead us down the road to a real solution, that process of discovery, I, I genuinely enjoy it. It's one of the things that gives me the most joy at work. So you know, with that, and um, I, I think with my faith too, I, I really, I really believe that humility is what keeps people being able to get more and more effective, can, 
continuously being able to grow in anything that they're doing, that this process of struggle and this process of coming up against challenges and accepting that you don't know everything and that you need help to get through those challenges. I mean, it helps me in every aspect of my life. It helps me in work. It helps me in my relationship with my family, with my relationship with my wife, my relationship with myself. I mean, I'm constantly questioning the things that I think. And one thing with that, you also have to be, be able to say, okay, I know I don't know everything, but I have to make a decision on this now. So this is the best I can do. I'm going to do it and I'm going to let the chips fall where they may, knowing that I may do okay now. And there's probably a better way to do it that I'll find in the future. And I'm totally good with that. I'm totally good with trying again a different way going forward. Thomas, how do you define, you, you just said something. I want to, I want to dive into the one word that you just said. You said that, you know, uh, you, you leaned into your faith. How do you, how do you define your faith? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I'm Catholic, so I have a, a Christian faith. Um, what I really lean into the most specifically when we're talking about this humility is this idea that the, the struggle is the blessing that we often, we pray for, you know, strength. We pray for courage. We pray um, to be able to help the people that we love in our life. And to me, the struggle that we are, we're likely praying because of this, we're praying the struggle that we're having. Maybe we're having a struggle with our, our families, with our wives, something at work that is the blessing, right? That's how you're going to work through this thing and become a better person and become stronger. And what I love about that is that there are so many people that have found that truth in so many different ways, right? That teaching is all over the Bible. That teaching is in neuroscience now where we know that taking on these stretch goals these, these things that we thought were way beyond our capacity and getting thrust into them often creates the most growth for people. This, this post-traumatic growth, this is a real thing. And I mean, even, you know, last year I read um, Man's Search for Meaning by, by Viktor Frankl. And you, you, you hear this story of this man who went through the most, the biggest nightmare I think you could possibly have in your life, going to Auschwitz, in uh, German um, concent concentration champ. And he comes out of that with this idea that this, this struggle brought his life meaning, that it was, it was what allowed him to come up with this grand philosophy for, for life and that he helped so many people with after uh, World War II had ended and he, he was lucky enough to survive. And to, to me, that is just so incredible that, that this concept of struggle that we, we all want to avoid, right? Nobody wants to take on struggle necessarily in their life, but how critical it is for our development, both spiritually and in work and in our relationships. I, I just, now when I run up against things that are difficult, I, I always take a step back and I'm like, okay, this is good. I know I didn't want this, but this is good. This is going to help me. 
Well, it's amazing to, uh, well, first I want to ask you this question is, why is it so important for you to be able to get this message out there? Because a lot of times what people would do would be like, hey, I do this thing. I'm successful in my business. I'm just going to keep it to myself because I don't want anybody else out there competing. But for you, I mean, you just literally like in the power of potential in that book, that blueprint for business and anybody, and I'm going to emphasize it again, anybody who's in business, whether it be small, medium, large, anybody who has a job, anybody who has breath in their lungs, anybody who has a relationship, read the book. It's a blueprint of communication, like that you have to communicate with the person and not fall in love with the system. Because what Tom has done is he showed you that these systems that he has are amazing, but they are alive, right? They're alive. And if they're not alive and they're just dead, then you fall in love with the system and you'll manage the people and that's where you will fail. But why is it so important for you to send this message out to the world when you could just keep this and keep growing your, I mean, because the rising tide car washes are just going to continue to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow and take over. And you could keep your secret, you know, elements, the 11 herbs and spices to you in the secret, but you're just saying, no, I want the whole world to see this. Why is that so important to you? Yeah. Comes down to the mission, right? We started this business to employ people with autism. And while we'll continue to grow and we want to build lots of car washes all over the country, we know that we can only employ so many people. And that in order for us to have the full impact that, that we, we can and we want to, we need other people to copy us. We need other organizations to take up this, this really awesome strategy. And, you know, at first we wanted to work specifically with families that are affected by autism to teach them how to build businesses like ours. We, we actually built an online course with the University of Miami to, to kind of teach this step-by-step process. And that was really cool. That, that, that was great. And we did, as you mentioned earlier, there's been over 20 organizations that have gone through it. At least 100, over 100 jobs have been created by those organizations, something that we, we we're really happy with. But there was a bigger opportunity, and it was in all of the small, medium-sized, and maybe even the large businesses, but definitely the small and medium-sized businesses that the things that we've learned are affecting them every day, difficulty finding really good talent, difficulty differentiating their brands, difficulty building their organizations so that they can scale and grow, that we felt like there was a really nice marriage there between what we've learned and what a lot of organizations need. And if we can get that message out there effectively, it will hopefully create a lot of jobs for people with autism. So yeah, I, I hope... People, people copy us. I hope people come down and visit us and, and take a look at the operations so they can you know, see it in action and then decide they want to do something similar in their own organizations. That's, that's something that we really get excited about. What is something about your parents that most people don't know? Hmm. Um, so... <laughs> What's something that, I mean, they're pretty private people. Most people don't know much about it, either of them. Um, but I think they've been just, I'm so privileged to have parents like them because they're very different. My mom is this calm and really loving person who, who would allow me to kind of do whatever I wanted to do and provide this safe space to come back to. There was this unconditional love that, 
that you could just feel so much from her that it really gave me confidence in myself. And it, it was, it was really just a, a wonderful experience with her. And then I had my dad who is this like larger than life personality. If you listen to any of his, his interviews, he's just like very charismatic. He's a big guy and he can just like, he can sell anyone, anything. And he was really successful in business. So I had this, on the other hand, I had this dad who's my greatest mentor who pushed, showed me to how to push myself, how to continue to work. If I was like struggling with my homework, there was no way I was going to bed until I finished it. And he would sit right there with me, even if it was midnight, even after he worked from God knows when in the morning until eight or nine o'clock at night, he would come home and say, oh, you didn't finish your math homework. We're going to sit down and do it. When I think a lot of dads would be like, okay, well, I'm going to bed. And he, <laughs> and you know, he wouldn't do that. And he did that in every aspect of my life. Um, he invested in all of the things that I wanted to do as a kid. So like I really got into baseball. He got me a, a baseball coach. He got me personal trainer when I got, got into high school and got into football. And he really nourished a lot of these things. And, you know, we, we talk a lot in our family about, you know, supporting Andrew. That's, you know, we, we built a business to support Andrew. But what I think goes un, um, unsaid sometimes, and I, I would like to highlight is that my parents were just as committed to my success and to supporting me the way that they supported my brother. They say possibly could be. I mean, my dad let me take lead on this, running this business when I was 23 years old. Why would somebody let a 23-year-old run anything? And my dad let me do it, even when it was failing and I didn't know what I was doing and, and he could have come in and fixed the problems way faster than I did. But he, he knew it was important for my, my growth too. He wanted both of his sons to, to be successful and to reach their potential. So he, he let me flounder and he, and he coached me through it, but he never took over. He never said, you know, you're relieved. This is my mine now, you know, go do this, this and that. He, he coached me through it. And, and that's why I am where I am today. And um, it's been, it's just been an amazing ride. What would you say to the young business owner out there that's just starting off? Um, and you know, because there's so many unknowns, right? And I know from starting a business, I was the first person in my family to, to start a, a physical business. And, you know, for me, it, I think the ignorance part of it was the best thing for me. Um, I had the permission to try from my parents. Mm -hmm. um, they, they constantly, my dad, I, I think you could sum my pops up in one phrase. And he would say it all the time to me. He said, son, you're the greatest. And then he would pause and he was like, so act accordingly. That's awesome. And so talk to those young business owners out there that are just starting off. <clears throat> What's the most important thing? that they can do early on to be able to set themselves up for long lasting success? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and to me, it comes back to that humility in that when we start a business, any business, we don't know everything that we need to know. And a lot of times, you know, you want to be this visionary founder and that gives you this perspective. Like I have to know everything. I have to have the answers to all of these questions. And I think a lot of people get stuck that way. 
in that they're not willing to ask for help or find mentorship because they're afraid of saying that they don't know something. So like when we started this business, we didn't know anything about washing cars, nothing. We didn't know anything about employing people with autism. We just knew Andrew. So we had to find people who, who could fill those knowledge gaps. We need to find mentors. And to do that, we had to go out and ask for help. We had to you know, explain what we wanted to do in a compelling way, but also in a way where we could tell people like, hey, in order for this to happen, I need you to help show me X, Y, and Z or connect me with someone who can do A, B, and C. And that to me is what a really good entrepreneur does is that they can, they can speak in a compelling way, but they can also leave the door open for help. And they are willing to ask for it right away to find the mentors that will inevitably make the business happen. What do you think that Andrew doesn't hear enough from you, or maybe he hasn't heard from you ever? Hmm. Well, he hears it from me, but he doesn't hear it enough. Is that I'm floored by his work ethic, his work ethic. Every day, you know, he comes to work and he busts his butt on cars. He's out there in the Florida heat, in the summertime heat, it gets really brutal. He's out there. He's not complaining. He's doing his job to the best of his ability. And, you know, a lot of times as, and I think a lot of people are guilty of this, but I know I am, is that sometimes I'll focus on, on just the things he needs to do a little better on, right? Like, okay, you missed that. You didn't wipe down that door enough. Go back and wipe down that door some more. And while that's important, I should be saying at least five times as much as I'm saying stuff like that. Hey, Andrew, that was really good. Great job on that tire. Great job on that rim. Good job doing the dry down here. And, you know, I, I think that it's easy for us to focus on the things that we need to do better. And it's important to pause. And I should pause more with Andrew and praise him for all the things he's doing really well. So I think that this is the, the sustainable uh, billion dollar question. Um, as you grow rising tide car wash, which it's going to, I mean, it's, it, it's going to continue to grow. I mean, employing 80% of autistic people, um, it honestly, it, it blows my mind and the, the type of, um, growth that you've been able to have. And let me say it again, from 35,000 car washes a year to over a half a million, it's pretty okay. <laughs> Okay, so we know that that's going to grow. It's going to continue to expand. This message about autism and about uh, employing autistic people, it's going to expand. The blueprint for every single business, whether you have autistic people or you just want your business to function at a higher level with uninhibited communication that will break down all the walls, that's going to continue to grow. How... With all of that going, how are you going to be able to keep your relationship with your wife and your core family at the, at the foundation of that and not lose that while everything else is going crazy? Yeah. I mean, that, that's something that actually I've been, t I've been thinking a lot about recently because, you know, we're thinking about doing uh, a large scale expansion and, and that might be in other markets. That might mean I'll have to travel some more. 
it could it could be really difficult. So I I think well first is is making sure we're all on the same page and that this is something that you know we understand the benefits as well as the downsides to it and it's okay. You know, uh-huh. I'm going to accept those things. But also building in some rituals that keep us close together. Things like a Sunday dinner together or, you know, whatever it is, going out on the boat uh, with my parents or, you know, for, for my wife and I, making sure we, we go out to dinner ourselves once a week or we're watching a TV show that we, that we really like. You know, whatever those practices are, and they're, they're different for, for everybody, but, you know, for my family, it'd be things like getting together for dinner because we live close to, close to each other, going out on the boat because that's something that we all like to do. Um, you know, making sure that those things don't get lost, that we still do those things even when it gets busy and hectic and maybe other things have to be sacrificed. But, you know, as we think about growth, it's something that I'm trying to stay really cognizant of because I don't, I don't want to go and do something that then I lose the soul of what I'm so happy about in my life right now just because we're trying to conquer the world. Thomas, how much is enough? You know, it's, so, it's funny that we're going into this because like I've been literally writing down like pros and cons to a bunch of different growth strategies and like trying to get my head wrapped around them. And so for me, from a financial perspective, any you know moderate growth from where we are right now, I'm going to be fine. I, I make a great living now. I don't really, I'm not really motivated to make any more money. Well, of course, that would be great. That's not really my motivation. What it comes down to, again, is that impact. How, you know, I really believe that we've been blessed in a lot of ways in building this business. A lot of doors have opened for us. And I think that's because of the mission. And to, to not continue to grow it, to not continue to improve the amount of people that we can employ... I think that'd be doing a disservice and I, I don't think that would be, would be the right thing to do. So whatever we, I don't know that there's enough. I think we'll always be striving to have more impact, to be able to impact more people. And it's just a question of how do we do that in a way where what we're doing doesn't lose the special thing that it is. What do you not tell your wife enough? Oh man, that I appreciate her patience with me. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's every uh, single husband. Yeah. <laughs> I can, you know, I, I give 110% to this business. And a lot of times I'll come home and like she'll ask me to do a couple of things that I won't want to do them. And, you know, there'll be a light bulb that doesn't get changed for like two weeks. She's like, Are you freaking kidding me? Like, <laughs> um, but like she, she know, and she, she really, she understands how much love I have for the, for the work that I do. And she's my support system. She helps me like when she sees, she'll be the first person that sees like, I'm, I'm overextending myself. She's like, Tom, you got to go to the gym or Tom, you know, you, you got to go out for a hike because those are the things that tend to level me out. And, you know, she'll, she'll be the one guiding me to do that stuff. She's like, you know, she knows me really well in that way. And she's so patient 
in helping me, you know, I, if I lash out or I get upset, like she's safe for me to be who I am. And sometimes the people that we're safest with, right. It's easier. It's easiest for us to like not be our best selves and just be like, you know, a, a, a lesser version of ourselves. And she's so understanding with me with those things. I mean, it's awesome. I found her, I'm really lucky. I found a really wonderful person. So Tom, I, I started the podcast because of my kids, Maddox and McKenna. Uh, Maddox is 11 years old. Uh, he's going to receiver camp today. He's so excited because nice. he's got a, um, he's got a receiver that uh, played in the NFL and, uh, you know, won the Super Bowl with the Green Bay Packers and he gets to work with him today. And my son wants to play that's in the awesome. NFL. Uh, that's what his, his thought is. I was like, what position do you want to play? He's like, I want to play receiver and quarterback. I was like, you can throw it to yourself, son. He's 11. He's like, yeah, dad, I'm going to throw it to myself. <laughs> Um, but he's just, he's a cartoon character. <clears throat> he's got his own, um, he's got his own, uh, personality, uh, marches to the beat of his own drum. This kid is unbelievable. Uh, my daughter, her name is, uh, McKenna and McKenna is 14 years old. And so, um, just sarcastic, humil- uh, hu- uh, sense of humor, incredibly, uh, um, compassionate, empathetic to people. And she's, uh, in the performing arts, she's really found that and she fa- has fallen in love. And what I wanted to show both of them is that iconic figures like yourself that are making such a huge impact in the world are not superheroes, that you're just a human being, but you have a, an amazing mission, you have a phenomenal attitude, and you have crazy work ethic. So what advice would you have for Maddox and McKenna? And if you could say both their names, it would be awesome. Yeah. So Maddox and McKenna, something I've been inspired about recently is this idea, and Gretchen Rubin writes about it, that it's easy to be heavy, but it's hard to be light. And, you know, we get so tied up in the things that we want to do. We get so serious about doing all these things that we really want to do that it's really easy for us to, to be serious and heavy and, and tough around the people that we love. But what people really want and what I think really shows someone who's competent and at least the type of person that I want to be is that they can handle all that stuff and still have this light perspective, have that sense of humor, and not take themselves too seriously, still be locked on focused, but do it in a way where you can be warm and caring and positive to the people around you, make you a lot better, and it will, it will make your life a lot better too. Tom, you have been absolutely phenomenal, even better than the first time when I tried to... Um record and I messed up the audio. It was my fault, man. But I, I believe that that was a, uh, an availability for us to be able to have some more time together. Um, for those of you who don't have the book, which is every single one of you, except me, I want to brag on that again. I got an early reader's copy. That's how I do it. That's how, that's how this podcast is. Um, but, um, the power of potential, honestly, like, I've, I, and for those people out there that are listening to the podcast and every one of you, I want to thank you because you helped us to get in the top 1% globally of all podcasts. You helped us to get it in the top 5% of, uh, most, uh, most shared podcasts on Spotify. And we did this with no, uh, marketing budget. Uh, we have not paid for any, um, you know, any ads, any marketing, anything like that. We have done nothing like that. It has all been organic is because you guys have listened, but every one of you listening, you need to pick up the book. The reason why is because 
it will change the way it will shift and it will encourage you. It'll smack you in the face. Like I told you earlier, it'll smack you in the face with some of the processes and systems that you have in your business, but it'll also help to add to you. And it's not a philosophy book. It's a like hard facts and actionable items that you can do right now, no matter how large your business is. And for those of you listening, you know that I don't promote things like this on the podcast. I don't talk about like, you know, hey, uh, I talk about the people and we connect that way. But it is so important to me for every one of you to read this book because it will blow you away. It's sitting on my nightstand right now. I've already read it, but it's sitting on my nightstand. And I just, I mean, I continually refer back to it because it is so impactful in business. If you're a business owner, small, medium, large, if you are an employee, if you're a human, or if you have any relationships in your life with people, human beings, this book is for you. And uh, Thomas, I want, I want to thank you, man. I mean, it has just been absolutely phenomenal. I want to have you back on more and more because I, I want to hear the iterations awesome. of this company. And I want to hear how your wife tells you to slow your roll yeah. at times. You know what I'm saying? Because <laughs> Thomas is going to be like, yo, we need to open 15 locations tomorrow. And wifey's going to be like, you need to pump the brakes for a second, Thomas. And let's go, <laughs> let's go on date night, right? So, right. It, dude, it, it is awesome. And please, please, please tell... Um, Andrew, that I said hello. I'd love to meet him someday. Um, For sure. Give a message to all those people out there uh, that are uh, that maybe don't know as much about um, autism or that you know have a family member that is. What's Thomas's message to them? That it can be really difficult when they're young, but man, there's a lot of opportunity for them to do wonderful things with their lives. People with autism can be killer. Assets to a lot of companies can do their own thing if that's what they want to do. And that hopefully with enough people doing things like we've done, maybe copying the things that we've done in their book, in their businesses, we can create a brighter future for everybody. And I want to thank you too, because in the book, you, you are wide open, man. I mean, you are wide open. Most people won't let you inside of their company. They'll give you the, mm. the, the brief kind of, but you went deep in and you were like, look, this, you can use this. I mean, it was so much, the whole book, Every chapter, every paragraph is meat. It's no fluff. And so I, I tell you, it's just, it's, it's unbelievable, man. I can't, I can't wait. Uh, I can't wait to be able to get out to Florida to see you too. Cause I want to come out great. that way, uh, which I think will be awesome. But um, thank all our sponsors. Uh, thank everyone. And also to go and click the links and subscribe on YouTube. You know, you should, if you're watching right now, smash the uh, subscribe button and Check out uh, Thomas Derry and uh, the Rising Tide Car Wash because it is absolutely phenomenal. So, um, my man, you have been phenomenal. Uh, I appreciate you. I'm going to force you to be my friend for the rest of your life, and you are officially off the hot seat.